Welcome, everybody. Um, this is the second of these um, series in Thinking Like a Social Scientist. I can see some familiar faces, but for those who are not familiar, um, I'm Sarah Worthington. I'm a pro-director here. And this is a series we started last year, principally for students, although I can see some people here are probably not students. That's great. I mean, it has expanded um, to include staff here and also some people from outside, which is all to the, to the good. The idea behind this series is really very, very simple. As I said, designed for students, but designed to give our students some exposure to disciplines outside the one that they had come here to study. Very brief exposure. I guess it's, in a sense, necessarily superficial, but it seemed a waste to have so many clever students here and so many clever staff here without giving them at least some exposure to each other. So I was lucky. I didn't need to apply very much pressure to my colleagues to get them to agree. Everyone I've asked has said yes, which is nice. To get them to agree to come and just chat to you for an hour about how their discipline works. I didn't really give them much more of a brief than that. And they're each taking quite different um, slants in doing that, but they're doing it very effectively, I think. So today we have Professor Kimberly Hutchings, who's from the Department of International Relations. Uh, you can see even in the financial crisis, international relations are quite important. And she's going to talk to you about this, killing across borders. We hope that's not part of the financial crisis. Uh, and without any more ado, over to you, Kimberly. Okay, thanks very much. Right, can people hear me okay? Yep, everybody hear me, including people in the remote corners. Okay, great. Um, as Sarah was saying, the brief for the lectures was to say something about what it means to think like a social scientist in relation to the disciplinary context from which your work comes. And I've tried to do something with um, that idea, but focusing down to some extent on one particular aspect of international relations, which has been of foundational importance to international relations as a discipline, and that's, uh, put slightly poetically there, killing across borders, uh, violence that crosses borders from um, traditional concerns with interstate war to increasingly contemporary concerns with other sorts of um, interstate violence. So I'm using interstate violence as the kind of exemplar of an area of concern for international relations scholars to try then to show you something about what it means to study things from the point of view of international relations as a discipline. I just want to start by taking you through uh, a series of images. That's the, uh, a shot from the Georgia-Russia war this year in August, so an interstate conflict. This is a picture after Israeli-Palestinian clashes in Gaza back in the early 2000s. A car bomb in Baghdad in 2006. Mahdi militiamen in Basra in 2008. This follows a clash between Pakistani troops and Taliban fighters in Pakistan in 2007. UN peacekeepers collecting bodies after Israel's attack on the Lebanon in 2000. US airstrike over Iraq in 2003. 
This is the armed forces of the Democratic Republic of Congo being trained by UN peacekeepers after they had actually revolted against the UN peacekeeping forces in the DRC um, in 2006. This is people fleeing from rebel insurgents in Monrovia in Liberia um, in uh, 2006 again, I think, uh, US Marines patrolling. Soldier in Bosnia mourning a comrade back in 1994, and then a Sudanese child soldier uh, caught up in the conflict as it crosses the border from Darfur and Sudan into Chad in 2007. Now, these are obviously just illustrations, and they're illustrations of the different types of violent conflict that mark international relations in the present day. Interstate conflict civil war, conflicts that involve state actors and non-state actors, great powers versus weak powers, international terrorism, different kinds of armed struggles for various sorts of self-determination and so on. All of them of concern to scholars of international relations because all of them have an international political dimension to them. Okay, if somebody came into the lecture hall this lunchtime and started shooting, as happened um, in the case of the Finnish example a few weeks ago, all of us would respond with great shock and horror to that violence, and we would be very surprised by it. It would take us by surprise. And after the event, after there had been violence in the lecture hall, in the process of analysis and getting over what had happened, it's most likely that disciplines like psychology and sociology would be called upon to explain why this had happened and what, how it had happened. But we tend to think very differently about forms of killing represented in these sorts of images, cross-border killings. We tend to process them as something much more to be taken for granted. And I want to suggest that the first step towards social scientific thinking taken in the study of international politics, and we're going back now by some decades to around the time uh, just after the First World War. The first step to social scientific thinking about international politics was the denaturalizing of cross-border violence. The identification of cross-border violence, in this case specifically interstate war, as a specific kind of social construction International relations as a discipline was founded in response to the devastation of the First World War and the quest to establish ways of understanding the conditions of possibility of interstate war and through that understanding to come up with ways of restructuring international politics so as to avoid wars in the future. Some of the examples, the images that I went through there fit with international relations traditional concern with interstate conflict. But to the extent that over the past century or so, since international relations began to take form as a systematic body of study of the world, increasingly all kinds of other sorts of cross-border conflict have become important, so that all of the examples uh, involved in these images have cross-border implications, they have international implications. And international relations scholars are now as interested in these sorts of violence as they have been traditionally in interstate war, although interstate war is obviously also an ongoing concern. We find in international relations studies today a focus on the international dimensions of civil conflict, of terrorism, of peacekeeping operations, of humanitarian intervention. 
So what I want to talk about today is what it means to think like a social scientist about killing across borders in all of this variety that we now currently experience it from the perspective of the discipline of international relations. And I'm hoping to say something about what makes international relations similar and what makes it perhaps distinctive to other social science disciplines in the course of that discussion. And also perhaps to say something about the kinds of challenges that I think social scientific research within international relations faces. Thank you. Okay, I'm sure many of you will already have thought this as soon as I started talking or showing the images. First thing we need to note is that clearly international relations is not the only discipline interested in understanding the phenomenon of collective political violence across borders. War and other sorts of conflict can be studied from the point of history, of political science, of anthropology, of sociology, and so on. And I dare say some of the other talks in this series will actually um, explain how that might be done. So what is distinctive about studying collective political violence across borders in terms of international relations? Okay, well, there's one quite straightforward or simple answer to that. When these phenomena are studied from the point of view of international relations, then they are studied in so far as these instances of cross-border violence in all their different um, forms, insofar as they are shaped by the patterns of social relations that are characteristic of international politics. Now, what exactly do I mean by that? That sounds very circular and peculiar. You know, what am I trying to say about what's distinctive about IR? Why can't I just go off and look at the history of these cases and understand them that way? Well, perhaps as a starting point, I want to suggest that we can approach what it means to try to think about these phenomena from the perspective of international relations in terms of a particular kind of starting point question. What would be the social scientific questions that the IR scholar would want to ask about things like interstate wars, international terrorism, or international intervention in civil conflicts? Now, obviously, there's going to be lots of specific questions that international relations scholars might ask, depending on what regions of the world they're interested, which particular types of advance that they might make their specialism in, and so on. But I want to suggest that there are three more general questions that orient specific research questions about violent conflict in international politics and that are characteristic of IR. The first question, how did international politics contribute to how and why this particular instance of cross-border violence or this series of instances happened? Second question, what does this particular event or series of events tell us about violence across borders in general as a recurring phenomenon within international politics? What does it tell us more generally about how and why such types of violence happen, how they are sustained, how they are made possible? And what more generally does this add to our understanding of international politics and the possibilities of change? So what I'm suggesting is that it's actually the orientation of the ways in which we look to understand the world from the perspective of international relations that makes it a distinctive way of looking at the world. And the orientation is bound up with this concept international politics. 
So in order for this to make any sense, in order for you to make anything out of it for places to go with analysis from an international relations perspective, you've got to do some thinking about, well, what actually does international politics mean? Okay? It's all very well saying to look at things from an international relations point of view is to look at them in relation to international politics, but what does international politics mean to begin with? And this is, of course, where it gets complicated or starts to get complicated. Because within the discipline of international relations, there are radically different accounts of what the uh, characteristics of international politics are and how those characteristics are to be explained and understood. And what I want to suggest today is that we can identify three interrelated axes of disagreement between different IR scholars about what international politics is and how it should be understood. Okay, so let's, what's the first axis of disagreement between IR scholars? The first axis is about what is the stuff that international politics is actually made of? What we would call, if we were getting philosophical, an ontological question about international politics. Now, there are all sorts of nuances to that, but for the sake of clarity, I've suggested there are three kind of pathways that international relations scholars currently go down in terms of answering that question. What is international politics made of? For some scholars, international politics consists of atomistic collective rational actors, states, and perhaps certain other international actors, maybe non-governmental organizations, multinational corporations might get a look in, but primarily in archetypally states. Atomistic rational actors who are engaged in maximizing their own utility in an anarchic context of systemic insecurity, in a situation in which there is an ongoing security dilemma. On this account, there is a very, very sharp divide between what, what international politics is like and what politics in the domestic or the state sphere is like. Okay? On this account, you may possibly have security within states, but you can't have security outside of states. And the reason you can't have security outside of states is because there is no global government. There is no world sovereign power to keep the collective actors in order, the rational actors in order. When the stuff of international politics is understood in this way, what drives action, what drives events, is the pursuit of material interests which is necessarily competitive. Something along the lines of a Hobbesian state of nature, which many of you will have come across if you've done a course on the introduction to political theory at any stage. And the argument for those people who see international politics in this sense as rational actors striving to maximize their security within an anarchic context, the argument here is that what happens, what has to happen, therefore, is behavior that leads to the pursuit of relative gains. Each actor is trying to maximize its position in relation to other actors to come off better than other actors to win, as it were, in this competition. And that this, without necessarily it even being the intended outcome of actors, results in balance of power behavior. So that the key characteristic 
of international politics is what is known as balance of power. Balance of power meaning quite literally the ongoing interrelation, winners and losers, alliances, competitive relationships between atomistic state actors within this anarchic context. Now those of you that do economics or political science may well recognize some of the elements of this kind of picture of social reality as being rational actors maximizing utility. And clearly there are links there to other social scientific accounts of what social reality looks like. So that's one version of the international. Now if you think back to the kinds of conflicts I was talking about earlier, international terrorism, civil conflict, the war between Georgia and Russia uh, in August this year, then clearly that kind of vision of what international politics is will give you a particular way into understanding why those conflicts happen. There will always be factors to do with relative balance of power between actors, self-interested behavior on the part of collective actors, the need to escape the security dilemma by maximizing your power. So something like Russia's behavior in Georgia becomes explicable in terms of it being Russia's ongoing response to the security dilemma inherent within the anarchic context of international politics and great powers tending to win out over weak powers. Even when it comes to different sorts of violence, such as international terrorism or international interventions in civil conflicts, humanitarian intervention, you're going to get them understood by reference back to this fundamental factor of the need to maximize utility within a context in which there is no sovereign authority to rule or control what you do. Okay, so that's one set of arguments about international politics that obviously has implications for how you understand killing across borders in, its, in the different forms that it takes. A second way of thinking about the stuff of which international politics is made understands international politics much more as a socialised condition. One in which cross-border interactions, including violent cross-border interactions, are embedded in normative assumptions about international order, such as respect for the principle or norm of sovereignty or of national self-determination. And rather than being a kind of vacuum in which different states collide with each other, the international is understood as a thick, dense social reality, one which forms and is formed by the identities of the interacting parties in an ongoing process of co-constitution and which is also institutionalized in various ways in things like international law, international institutions and organizations, various kinds of international regimes. What happens with this way of understanding international politics is that everything does become more complicated and it begins to matter much more, not just that there are collective actors in an anarchic condition, which is the key thing that matters for the first understanding. But what kinds of collective actors they are begins to matter. Their identities, the way that they construct themselves in relation to others. It begins to matter potentially whether it's a liberal state or an authoritarian state that you're talking about. And the possibilities are opened up 
of what state actors are like being influenced by things like the, the international institutions that they have created. So again, if we go back to try and understand or think about how this might apply to what's going on in cross-border violent conflict, if we take this much more socialized understanding of international politics, of what international politics actually is, then things like the particular identities and interests of those people clashing in particular places of the world become very important. Things like nationalism might have an important explanatory role for uh, certain sorts of conflict. Things like the way that um, some regimes have imbibed ideas about human rights and some haven't. So again, we get a different sort of set of possibilities for explanation and possibilities that perhaps relate more strongly to other disciplines like sociology than they do to other disciplines like economics. The third way of thinking about the nature of international politics is, if you like, more radically socially constructivist. For some scholars currently working within the field, we should understand international politics as something that is essentially discursively constituted. Constitu constituted literally through different kinds of discursive performance, which are coded in different sorts of ways and continually reproduced, quite literally, through what different actors within international politics say about themselves, through the codes of meaning through which they interpret their own actions and present their own actions to others. Here again, you're getting even more of a sort of pulling apart of the black box of the state that you may get in the initial understanding of what international politics is made up of. Um, there's some very interesting work which has looked at the ways in which the discursive construction of national identity along ethnic lines helps to dictate the kinds of settlement that you're likely to get out of peacemaking processes like the Dayton Accords back in Bosnia in the mid-1990s. So if you think about the international that way, again you think differently about what it is that you're looking at when you're looking at that picture of the child soldier or you're looking at that picture of the bomb going off or the remains of the car bomb. The stories that collective and individual actors actually tell about themselves become much more potentially pertinent to understanding what's going on. Okay, so we've got major disagreements about what international politics is. And what follows from this, quite clearly, as I'm sure you'll all be able to see, is disagreements, therefore, about why things happen in international politics in the way that they do. A second major axis of disagreement between different scholars of international relations is the relative importance of different sources of explanation for what goes on internationally, either when it comes to particular international events, a particular invasion, a particular war, or more generally for patterns and regularities within international politics. Sometimes this is referred to as the levels of analysis problem. For example, certain scholars, some of you may recognize these labels, some not, but certain realist and liberal scholars, for instance, within international relations, will agree that international politics is anarchical 
in the sense that there is no overarching sovereign power. But they will disagree profoundly about the explanatory significance of that anarchy, the extent to which it is the fact of anarchy that is the key way of getting to the reasons why things happen the way they do in international politics. So some scholars will argue precisely for that crucial explanatory priority of anarchy for understanding what goes on within the international arena. And others will argue that anarchy on its own explains nothing. It's only anarchy in combination with all sorts of other factors that helps us to understand what's going on. I'm um, just to illustrate one example of this is that certain forms of realist scholars uh, pointed to the fact of anarchy's importance or, or saw themselves as uh, proving the fact of anarchy's importance by pointing to the way in which the USA and the USSR during the Cold War, in spite of having very, very different ideological positions, being very, very different sorts of states with very, very different sorts of histories, they all actually behaved, they both actually behaved in the same way in the international context. They both sought to buy up powers in order to extend their spheres of influence. They both invested in major arms races and so on and so forth. In other words, the argument there is, well, if anarchy is not the key question, then why is it that two states that are so different nevertheless behave in the same way when they're behaving internationally? So that's one example of a way of thinking that prioritises anarchy. In contrast to this, and I'm sure some of you will have come across this argument, there's something called liberal democratic peace theory, which has been taken up and become quite influential in policy arguments uh, within the USA and, and within the UK as well, which argues that there is something about the nature of liberal states that means that they are unlikely to go to war with one another, with other liberal states. In other words, a quality of the states themselves, a characteristic of the states themselves, is what explains their behaviour in the international arena. So it's the diametrical opposite to the anarchy claim. Instead of it being the structure of anarchy, the absence of a sovereign that explains why conflicts happen, we have an argument that is saying, no, it's to do with the internal nature of states as to why conflicts do or don't happen. You can see why this is called a kind of levels of analysis issue. There is this kind of sense. We kind of see it in our minds in terms of, of levels. Then again, there are a series of scholars that point to other sorts of factors and would argue that neither the structure of anarchy in itself nor the identity of particular international actors such as states can explain recurring phenomena in international politics. We have Marxist analyses that argue for explanations grounded in the transnational structures of capitalism. And again, you can obviously see the influence of Marxist analysis across different social sciences. We have feminist scholars who argue for the explanatory significance of gendered relations of power, particularly in relation to cross-border violence and to the ways in which war is sustained, violence is sustained as a practice in the international arena. We have arguments from certain constructivist scholars that certain sorts of systems of ideas are of crucial importance. And recently, very much in the wake of 9-11, religion has suddenly become something that international relations scholars want to talk about again. So in addition to debating what international politics actually consists in, 
there's an ongoing debate about what the implications then are for where you should look for what explains what happens within international politics. So if we look at any of those conflicts I was talking about earlier, why is it they happen? What, what can we say sensibly about the international dimension of explaining why these phenomena are happening in the ways in which they are happening? So again, if we want to abstract a bit from this, when we look at explanations in international relations, we find different forms of structural explanations, ones that may go to the structure of capitalism as the key reference point, ones that may go to the structure of anarchy as the key reference point. We have explanations that go back to the behavior of agents, particular types of states, particular sorts of collective actors. And we also get, going another step back, rationalist explanations, material explanations, and ideational explanations. So sometimes explanations are in terms of a particular model of rationality, of means-end rationality, it following in a certain context that actors will necessarily follow a certain logic in what they do. Sometimes it's material. It's actually the pursuit of material interest or material causes that push events into happen. And sometimes it's ideational. It's a question of ideas. Now, again, within the social sciences, generally, these are debates that go on. So there's nothing particularly odd about international relations, except perhaps the extent to which there is much less of a disciplinary consensus in IR than there may be in some other disciplines. Uh, for instance, economics or anthropology, I think, have a clearer sense of how they see both the answers to the what question and the answers to the why question than is the case within international relations. But the third area of disagreement, which is obviously internally linked to the why and what question answers, is disagreement about how to find out, about method. Obviously, depending on what you think international politics is like and what you think are the key sources of explanation in international politics, you're going to end up with a very different set of prescriptions for how you can find out why it is that one particular event or another happens, or one particular pattern is recurrent, or one particular pattern seems to have been interrupted, and so on and so forth. So what you find in IR is that it is perhaps the most methodologically eclectic of social science disciplines. This is particularly the case within uh, the UK and Europe. If you go to the US, it, it's somewhat more narrow and is much closer to political science in the ways in which it positions itself. But within the UK and Europe, you have a much, much broader set of frameworks. And you have everything from the use of formal analysis, complicated models and simulation exercises to try and identify crucial variables for explaining conflict or the absence of conflict to highly ethnographic, qualitative approaches, uh, talking to elite statesmen, having long uh, qualitative interviews to try and get to the kind of internal narrative that, pe that international actors are telling themselves about what they're doing as the way to get in uh, to what's going on. So if we go back to these questions, questions that I'm suggesting orient research within international relations as a kind of disciplinary starting point. Clearly what we've got is actually a range of starting points embedded in these questions depending on how you see the what question, what is international politics, the why question, what are the sources of explanation, and the how question, how do we actually go and find out. 
So we've got a set of different starting points for hypotheses about the relationship between international politics and particular instances of cross-border violence. One that expands, I mean, it, on one level, it's a very narrow set of possibilities. You can only really talk about the balance of power question in order to understand why something happens. On the other hand, it's very expansive. A whole range of different variables may become important, all depending on where you take your social scientific starting point from. And one of the things that's very important to note, I think, is that many of the approaches within international relations very much put into question the notion of causation in any straightforward sense. Perhaps ideas about multi-causality in which many things come together, but more often you're talking about conditions of possibility, permissive conditions. Things might happen, but they're not definitely going to happen. You're not talking about the kinds of understanding that lends themselves to saying, okay, A will follow B, will follow C. There is some work in IR that tries to do that, but even the most formal and rationalistic uh, approaches tend always to position themselves as probabilistic and as partial. They are not giving you the whole picture. Okay, so just to try and sum up a bit, if we look at the first question, how did international politics contribute to why and how this particular event or series of events happened? Three different positions, these are just plucked out of the air, it could be a whole load of other ones. Um, but say, take a standard realist position. How did international politics contribute to why and how this particular event or series of events happened in relation to the Georgia-Russia war? It's very clear that what you have to do is to study the processes of the renegotiation of the balance of power in the post-Cold War period. You have to look at the relationship not simply between Russia and Georgia, between Russia and the EU, Russia and the US. You have to position it in terms of regional balances of power uh, and the whole international system balances of power. If you do that, what you will be able to come up with potentially is a set of reasons why the Russia-Georgia war happened that are more likely to be of the kind, well, there were these precipitating or permissive possibilities there. The fact that it happened exactly when it did, we can't explain. But we can show you why it was likely to happen, given the particular balance of forces that were around at the time. Suppose you're looking at this from a constructivist perspective. How did international politics contribute to why and how the Georgia-Russia Russia war happened? Um, how do we see the relationship between the particular and the general in this case? Well, there you can get arguments, for instance, about there being different sorts of cultures of anarchy involved in the relationship between Russia and Georgia, between Russia and the EU, and between Russia and the US, and that we have to understand what happened in terms of a combination a cross-cutting of these different cultures of anarchy, which themselves go back to questions of the identity of the different key collective actors that were involved. We can also get a breaking down of the black box of the states even further to pointing to the significance of non-state actors, to particular um, criminal organisations, terrorist organisations, vested interests in South, uh, South Ossetia, Akazia and so on, that were all part of the picture. 
you get a much broader range of different possibilities for explaining it, a, different, a much broader range of hypotheses that you might have to go out and actually test. But suppose you were coming at this as a feminist IR scholar. What would you say then? How did international politics contribute to how and why the Georgia-Russia war happened? Well, the initial response of most IR scholars is, well, feminism can't possibly have anything to say about this. You know, what on earth has gender got to do with international politics? But if you're a feminist IR scholar, you've paid attention to the way in which the structures and practices of international politics and the structures and practices of states and of non-state actors are all of them thoroughly and fundamentally gendered. And in particular, international practices of violence are thoroughly gendered. You may not be able to explain why the Georgia-Russia war happened when it did, but you may be able to say something extremely interesting about how it is possible or was possible to mobilize the real human beings in those images to engage in killing, to risk being killed, to support and sustain those who are injured and killed. Very, very difficult to actually sustain war as a practice of international politics without gendered relations of power. Once we begin to pull this apart, you see that actually that first question is many different questions. And what we then have to move to, I think, when trying to think, as I ask scholars, with all this kind of smorgasbord of possibilities for thinking about uh, the international, is what kinds of explanation, ways of thinking are complementary, could build together to give us better, more holistic understandings of the interrelationship between international politics and particular events or patterns of events, which are contradictory, can't work with each other. We have to choose between the two. And as part of this, we have to actually go out of the lecture hall. We have to go out of the endless kind of opinion pieces about things like why the Georgia-Russia war happened to look for empirical evidence. And obviously that evidence may take all sorts of different forms, but the danger if you don't do that and you don't think very carefully about the way that you do that is you just end up in a circular situation. And that was what I wanted to say about what I think is one of the major challenges to international relations as a social science and one of the reasons why other social sciences often see IR as this rather messy and hopeless endeavour. It's precisely because of that danger of circularity. That you'll have this set of starting points and you'll therefore only find what it is that you started off, as it were, assuming that you would find. So it seems to me one of the big challenges for international relations scholars is to think harder about the instruments through which they go out and test out their assumptions, both about what the international is, what international politics means, and about what the key reference points are for explanation and understanding within the international context. Because it's only by doing that that you could actually come back to these second two questions and say anything sensible. Okay. You can't go straight from question one to question two to question three. There's got to be research there in the middle of it. And I think rather too much work in international relations actually doesn't think carefully enough about that um, actual empirical engagement that needs to go on. So I suppose what I'm saying in sum is that thinking as a social scientist in international relations involves you to some extent in making choices 
Some of those choices are philosophical choices, and they are true, I think, across all of the social science disciplines. You have to make choices about what you think social reality is made up of, about what you think are the most helpful metaphors for getting a grip on this object of investigation that we're trying to understand. You have to make choices following on from those philosophical choices that are much more practical about, okay, if these are the assumptions I'm making, then what are the best ways of testing out those assumptions, applying those assumptions, so as to illuminate both particular cases and general patterns and regularities. People get quite frustrated with IR, I think, because often people who come to study it think, well, you know, it's, it's going to precisely tell me why the war in Georgia uh, happened. It's going to tell me precisely what's going on with the Middle East crisis. But actually, IR is always about that dialectic between the particular and the general. And the emphasis of the study of international politics is to go from the general to the particular, but then back to the general, to try to bring out broader conclusions about what this tells about patterns of social relations within international politics. Because only by doing that can you actually engage with the third question, the possibilities of change. Going back to where I started, the origins of international relations in interstate war, in the desire to get rid of interstate war. There were a bunch of international relations scholars in the 1920s who thought they had cracked it. They thought they had understood why it was that war happened, and they thought they had understood, therefore, how it was that they could create instruments to stop it happening in the future. And that was, if you like, a magnificent failure, although a failure with consequences that can be seen as more productive in the post-Second World War period. But I think the point there is that unless you've got a deep understanding of what this is that you're trying to study, there is no way that you're going to be able to produce plausible means and mechanisms of actually addressing problems like cross-border violence, cross-border killing. So I'll just end by saying that I think the dangers in IR theory is that it can be, or IR, the approach to IR is that it can be, evolve a kind of circularity. That the challenge to IR is that it has to deal with complexity and how you deal with complexity without getting completely lost. And that perhaps the strength of IR at the end of the day is that it is partial and it recognises itself as partial. International politics isn't going to be the only thing making a difference. is isn't going to be the only thing that feeds into patterns of cross-border violence. But international relations scholars are interested in it as one of the things that's significant. That's what they focus their attention on. And they see that partial understanding as then being able to be complementary to the sorts of understanding that you might get from the historian's account or the political scientist's account or the anthropologist's account of what is going on. Okay, I'll stop there. Any questions? Yes, sorry, I did talk to you, as usual, talk to you. <laughs> Hurry up. Um, I have a question, but I'll defer to others if there are others. Okay, can I kick off with mine then? One of the things that you said was, um, I asked scholars need to do more research, and I was thinking, okay, what kind of research could you do? Because if you're talking about what caused a conflict, then I guess, depending on which perspective, 
people ever start from the other end and say, okay, there is a conflict, how do we, how do we resolve that conflict? Because I think in the resolution of the conflict, you might actually test what in fact caused. Yeah. 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 I mean, I don't think I'll ask. I ask scholars and social scientists don't do that, although they may well learn from the ways in which conflicts are resolved. Because it, it and it usually is the kind of negative thing in that you learn what was the mis what were the mistakes about you know. So you know, there's a lot of argument about how the mistakes of something like the Dayton Accords were that they built back in the ethnic differentiation that was actually hugely significant to perpetuating the conflict in the first place. So I think looking at conflict resolution, looking at peacemaking, looking at things like the failures of the League of Nations in the interwar period certainly do are things that international relations scholars would do. But I think the other thing that we do get is that that circularity isn't necessarily what happens. Things happen, stuff happens, actually shakes the certainties. 9-11 was a very interesting event from the point of view of international relations, especially within the US, where it was very much dominated by the understanding of balance of power politics as the key to you know, relations across borders, that being what mattered. And suddenly 3,000 people were killed and there'd been a major incursion into territory and it wasn't to do with an interstate conflict in any traditional sense. And suddenly, I asked, and in a way it's both the strength and the weakness of I.I., the strength was that actually people said, okay, well, maybe we need to start thinking more broadly. Maybe we need to bring in other parents. Maybe we need to do some more borrowing from other social science disciplines to understand what's going on, in addition to the things we already know about the characteristics of the international context. But, of course, the problem with that can mean that you're then scurrying to catch up. So, you know, suddenly you're getting a plethora of research on religion in international relations. I don't actually know how much the scholars looking at that really know about religion compared to, say, a sociologist of religion. So it, it, the trouble with international politics is because it is so big and it is so complex. You can understand why certain people approaching it and trying to understand it have wanted to simplify it, have wanted to create a nice, neat model that will capture it, because otherwise you just seem to get lost in this eternal complexity. But I, I am very conscious of the way in which too much of the time there is not enough of a move between these rather big picture understandings of what international politics is to the nitty gritty of the way that is lived and worked through. And that's part of the reason for having the images at the beginning because you don't see states, you don't see multinational corporations, you see people. It's people who carry all of these processes um, and, and that at the end of the day are going to be the source of information to try and work out what did or didn't happen. Um, and that kind of touching the concrete, I think, is something that international relations needs to do more, although I'm very conscious that a lot of my colleagues do do it in very effective ways. Yeah. Uh, has there been attempts to combine the different theories of IR, like to bring in the different insights provided by the same Yeah, I mean, I think, I, I certainly think um, there have been, and quite a lot of constructivist work sees itself as this kind of middle ground that actually brings in insights from all the different theories and can use all of them. The problem comes when there are real contradictions between the ways that social reality is being, is, is being understood. It's very difficult to make compatible a kind of wholly rational actor model with um, a, 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 a and a hermeneutic understanding of, of social reality in which people's interpretations and meanings are crucial um, to, to what it is. So I think there are, there are certain limits 
to that whole system, but there are efforts to do it, and and you know that there have been claims made that actually constructivism is the new sort of, you know, way forward that does combine the best of the old but get rid of the worst. Yes. One, one oh. More. oh right, sorry. Yes, <laughs> I should have shut up earlier, shouldn't I? Uh, Sorry, discourse analysis, did you say? Yeah. Well, I think, um, actually, those that do understand international politics discursively d do have a very good way into the specific. And in some ways, are sometimes accused of becoming too much obsessed with this. You know, so lots and lots of very detailed analysis of the speeches or statements of particular actors in a negotiation, say, is the way to understanding what is, what is going on. Um, and perhaps losing sight of um, material interests or other sorts of factors that might have played into it. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think one should confuse the idea that social reality is discursive with the idea that there is no reality out there. See what I mean? You know, the, it, it's still... I mean, we're always using metaphors when talking about social reality, aren't we? But it's still tangible, even if it's discursive, if you see what I mean. So I don't think there's any contradiction there. Okay, I know more people are starting to put their hands up, but um, I'm going to finish. <laughs> so can we say thank you very much to Kimberly Hutton?